0: Welcome to the Dental Implant Podcast with your host, Pav Kaira, your source of knowledge for all things relating to dental implants. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something valuable.
1: I hope. Now let's join the geekiest implant dentist I know, Pav Kyra. Pav Kyra, once again, welcome back to the Protrusive dental Podcast. How are you, mate?
0: I'm very good, Jazz. thanks for having me back. And as we spoke about just a few seconds ago, I'm gonna push this out on my podcast
1: as well, so it always feels
0: twice as productive whenever we
1: do <laughs> Excellent, well, I've referred to you before as the oracle of the implant world, but the themes we're covering today, and we'll just get an introduction, just in case someone hasn't heard of the previous ones we've done. And some of the group functions we've done uh, have been really well received because people message me saying, "Jazz, you're covering these real world topics. And what we covered in those topics, like how do you probe periodontally around implants, right? things like that, uh, screw loose things, we covered these really big themes. And so today's theme, but for those listening, or, or watching on YouTube uh, is a twofold, one that will help every single dentist, I think, right, we'll learn about Rochette bridges, how do you take them on? How do you take them off? How do you put them on? What cement do you use? Uh, the selection criteria, that kind of stuff for like temporary, you know, before they have the implant and while uh, implant restoration, while we're waiting for osseointegration and the grafting, etc and how we can optimize our temporary implant crowns to better serve our future implants and soft tissue augmentation. So something in it for those who are already doing implants. So this is gonna be a bit of a beast, uh, but Pat, for those who haven't heard of you and the lovely work that you do, including your podcast, just give us a flavor about yourself again.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jazz. So I am a full-blown Titanium nerd. I mean, to the point where, you know, when my wife and I went out shopping for for, for wedding rings, She was like, "I want that one," and uh, and she was like, she said to me, "Why do you want that one?" I said, "Because it's titanium." And she was like, "Why do you want gold or platinum?" (laughs) Didn't realize until afterwards that titanium is what implant because she's not a dentist that titanium is what implants are made of. So I I literally live and breathe implants. (laughs) I have placed over ten thousand implants. I have been very very fortunate to have been exposed to a lot of surgery. Uh, So I've become very confident and and, and proficient at it and uh, I still have a lot to learn because I'm a great believer as as soon as we turn around and stop learning we do ourselves a disservice and we do our patients a disservice and this is a philosophy that both you and I have in common. So I run the dental implant podcast which is kind of like off the back of a discussion that you and I had a few years ago. You were like, "Pat, you know so much. Why don't you, uh, you know, why don't you run a podcast?" And I was like, "I don't know how." And you were like, "Let me show you." So you know, you've been my, you be my sage and mentor in the, in that context. And now I've also set up and I run the Academy of Implant Excellence. So I'm 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 busy, busy. Training, mentoring, and uh, everything relating to implants. So it's uh, my daughter's only two and a half, and it won't be long before I've got a motor in her hand practicing on models, to place <laughs> <device> implants. So
1: <laughs> excellent. Well, I can definitely vouch for your geekiness. Like when I was newly qualified, I think maybe you were 10, 12 years qualified at that stage, uh, and the amount of knowledge that you had on occlusion and splints and obviously osmosis, I, I tried to uh, absorb as much of that as possible, and I've c- kind of run with that. Yeah, I've seen, I, I, I I've seen you diversify into implants and how you've really taken to that so i think you've got this personality path whereby when you take something you properly latch on am i right in that yeah
0: uh, it's it, it, it's obsessive i can't help it that's that that's just me and that's purely from a point of view i'm a great believer if you're going to do something do it properly and in order to really help our patients and it's a personal journey as well. Right. You know, I don't want to get to the end of my career and think to myself, you know, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And, you know, I want to get to the end of my career and think to myself, actually, you know, what? there's nothing more that I could have put into this. Absolutely nothing. I've helped as many people as I can. I've trained as many dentists as I have could. I've got an X number of uh, careers off, off the ground and those people have helped more patients as well. And I think you have to be obsessive about it. And that's that. You know, that's that's just my philosophy. If you're not obsessive about it, uh, you don't have to be quite as obsessive as me, but you at least need to have a, a, a passion about it. There's a difference between passion and obsession. I've got an obsession with it. You need to at least have a passion about it. And the rewards that come off the back of that professionally, personally, are just unmatched, unmatched.
1: Amazing, and I think that's uh, valuable for anyone uh, in their dental journey, if they're early or later on, that's really great to hear. Now, getting moving to clinical direction now, If you talk about Rochette bridges, right? So for those who who haven't heard of Rochette bridges, I'm sure most of our colleagues listening and watching know this already, but a resin burn bridge, for example, classically, a metal wing with a ceramic pontic attached, as we know so well. uh, And then if you were to get a a, a round burr and poke holes through it, that's now essentially a Rochette bridge. Now, commonly, when I think of Rochette bridge, I think of those who place implants favoring this type of restoration to make sure the patient has a tooth to smile, to chew, or not maybe to chew with, smile with, while they're waiting for everything to cook. Now, before we get into the sort of ins and outs of this, I wanted to know from you, uh, Pav, in your protocols, like uh, anterior teeth, for example, what percentage of the time are you actually putting like the day you place an implant, you're putting some sort of uh, an implant temporary crown on top. And in what percentage cases are you then relying on a denture on a bridge or some sort of prosthesis? I'd
0: say it's about 50 50. And one part of that is some patients uh, don't have the funds to go for uh, an immediate uh, load as well. Uh, And that's purely from a point of view that uh, it does take more time, which you have to charge for. And some patients like, I'm happy with a denture, I'm happy with Rochette, whatever it is. There are also some instances where you can't, from a biological point of view, while you're waiting for everything to heal... But I like to uh, uh, go immediate load as much as what I possibly can. In fact, it's probably a little bit more than 50%, probably about 60% of the time. And the reason for that's quite simple is you you get a lot of control over how things heal, assuming you do things properly. And in addition to that, patients really appreciate it. You know, They uh, appreciate a fixed tooth over a denture or having a space. So I think it comes down to biological factors and patient factors as well. But the the more that I can do predictably, the happier I am effectively.
1: And, and in, in those cases where you are, uh, let's say it's a lateral incisor, the patient maybe used to have a denture and then you're now placing a tooth there implant and for the, whatever reason, maybe patient can't afford it or they want to space it out or you want to give it more time to cook and heal. You could either, I guess, just gouge out a bit of acrylic on the denture and then let them use that same denture, right? Is that any, any nuances to that you want to add to before we talk about the Rochette Bridge?
0: No, not really. I, I think what's really important is so let, let, let's talk about two different factors here is the patient who already has a denture and the patient who has a tooth and you want an immediate denture as a backup. So mm-hmm. the patient who already has a denture, yes, you can adjust it, but you need to make sure that there is no pressure on the uh, on the healing abutment or on the healing site at all. So you've actually got to create a little bit of space about it uh, underneath it.
1: How can you test to make sure you have got that because imagine I mean, after surgery, I mean, I was, I'm sure your surgery is very neat. And you got the sutures on and it looks very good. And probably you can eyeball it. But uh, I don't know, do you squirt some light body impression and just see if there's space? I mean, how do you actually just be sure?
0: So I don't like light
1: bodied because it flows
0: into the surgical site a little bit too much. What you can use is you can use a little bit of occlusal registration material. Because that's a little bit stiffer, it'll still give you the exact same information. But if you see any go down the side, you can just grab it with tweezers and pull it out. So you need to use something a little bit stiffer. Using a light body or pressure indicator paste, you're actually causing issues in in the surgical site. If I've got a patient where they need to have a tooth removed and uh, we are making them a denture, in those cases, uh, quite often what I'll do is I'll ask the lab, in addition to making the denture, there's two additional instructions that I give them. Number one, don't sock it. And number two, don't add a flange. So it's literally a tooth hovering just above. And I tell them it's specifically for an implant. And they normally keep it clear of where they think it's gonna end up by about a millimeter or so. And that ends up being really nice. But I always warn the patients beforehand If we need to use this denture, you're gonna absolutely hate it. And then when they hate it, it's just like, I did warn you about this. But that again is one of the reasons why I try not to do anything removable. Another reason why I try not to do anything removable is unless you're doing a, a customized healing abutment, everything starts to collapse. So not only do you get the benefit of having a fixed tooth and, and that's, that's obviously easier than doing a Rochette or, or a denture when you haven't got a massive amount of occlusal clearance because you're not relying on wings, you're not relying on acrylic. But in addition to that, if you contour it correctly, it supports the soft tissues whilst they heal. So now, um, You'll
1: have to explain, uh, Pav, because a lot of younger dentists and uh, students may be listening, uh, even experienced dentists who just are, are new to the implant world, yeah. customised healing abutment. Like you've placed the implant, really break it down like I'm five years old.
0: Fine. So on a very simplistic level, once the implant's in place, you need something to protect the head of the implant uh, whilst it's healing, whilst it's cooking. Otherwise, soft tissue is going to grow into the screw channel and, and it's, it's, it's a complete mess. Okay, The neatest way to do it is what, with what's called a healing abutment. Uh, that's just something that screws onto the head of the implant. There's two ways. Is that of doing same it. as a
1: healing cap? Is that same thing as well? Healing it cap? is.
0: It is the same. It is the same. Okay. It's different to a cover screw. So, uh, cover screw is basically the gums will grow over the top, whereas a healing abutment slash healing cap is it will protrude into the mouth. So you'll see a little, uh, you'll see a little stud in the mouth, and that's the healing abutment. So when it comes to healing abutments there's two ways of doing it. You can use a stock one which is just with your implant systems when you're ordering the implants you ask the lab to send you whatever size. They come in different heights, widths, things along those lines, different connections depending on the implant system that you're using. The issue that you have with that is it doesn't it's not really bespoke for the patient, right? It's like getting a what is it? You know you know those 3M crowns that you can get out of a packet and then you retrofit it. Yeah.
1: So yeah. it, it's not even a like really- a whole crown as well, like whole crowns, like the preformed right. metal crowns for children's teeth, they're all you know, you have to make the the tooth fit the, the preformed thing. Uh, even yes. like if I was to say like, even sectional matrices, right, we have to whatever tooth, whatever configuration the tooth is, you have to just select the appropriate sectional matrix, but it's never going to be fully customized for your cavity. That's
0: exactly correct. Now imagine if you had something that's fully customized, how mm. much more predictably that soft tissue is going to heal. And basically, there are certain things that you need to look at when you're doing this type of stuff. When you at, 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 at the CEJ level and then uh, underneath the CEJ level all the way to the head of the implant, there's certain ways of contouring it depending on the implant height and the position so that it supports the soft tissue whilst it heals. And the whole point is is you go, you go to this length because at the end of the day, you don't want to tell the difference between a, a, an implant and a tooth. This should just look exactly the same it's very difficult to do, like with all things uh, in the aesthetic. If you're doing a single veneer at the front of the mouth, it's very hard to achieve. And this is no different. which is why we want to go to the nth degree to try to maintain that control, to try to mould everything and keep in control as as of much of what we possibly can.
1: Now, I I know we might be uh, digressing from the main topic of the podcast, but I'm really interested in this. Like, if you've got the the stock abutment like you know off off the shelf and uh, it's not customized to the patient fine but then how do you actually make the customized do you customize the stock one like adding flowable i've seen before uh, or do you arrange this uh, in advance by taking fancy impressions to to do it how do you actually create something that's customized for the patient chair side
0: you can actually do it both so if you use guided surgery quite often you can have a customized healing abutment made i don't see the the of point in that i think it just increases cost for the for, for, for the sake of it really because it's actually quite easy to do uh, chair-side. So instead of using a stock healing abutment, you can use what's called a temporary cylinder. And it's it's think of it like a tall healing abutment, but it's, it's actually a little bit narrower. So in that dead space between where the cylinder is and, and where the rest of the tip, that's where you add your flowable composite. And then you, you can unscrew it on and off. You contour it to support the soft tissue correctly, you clean it, put it back in place, and then that's kind of like it. And then what that does is it gives the correct contours, it gives the correct support whilst everything heals underneath.
1: And then the presence of a customized uh, healing button, as you explained that you you made it, just that you've explained it really beautifully. Now, how does that influence the denture versus bridge or, or does it not influence which type of restoration you might go for as your interim?
0: So it doesn't really influence. So it, if the implant's got in nice, really nice and stable, You do that contouring subgingively first, and then you can just add more material on to make your temporary crown. Or you can get like a a, a shell crown made and just stick that all together. It's just gluing bits together. The other really nice way of doing it is if your tooth is relatively intact, is cut the tooth off just below the CEJ, punch a hole into it, and then you can actually use the existing tooth as your temporary as well.
1: Like the old so living it, bridge kind of thing, but applied to a, a single exactly implant. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now,
0: there are histological benefits to that, which is mm, a little bit too titanium nerdy for this. Yeah, yeah. So.
1: Clever, clever. But, but, but by definition, if you're doing that, you are then going down the immediate loading pathway, right?
0: Yes. So you're going okay. down the immediate loading pathway. So if you're not immediate loading, once you've done that contouring, everything's kind of like just one millimeter above the gum height. So it's not really encroaching too much into uh, into your restorative space for your temporary, although it is a little bit, and sometimes at the front of the mouth in, the, in a high smile line you can I see. I was it just going to really say
1: it's a nightmare in a high smile a high smile line, right? Like how do you? Yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're not going for a flange, how do you even cover that then?
0: This is why immediate loading is is beneficial, and this is why patient communication is really important because some, sometimes you can't hide it and you have to mm-hmm. turn around and say to the patient. I'm sorry it's going to look ugly and it's going to look worse before it gets better and what i say to my patients is look i'm very very good at what i do but i'm not a genie i can't just magic things just because we want it there are certain biological and certain biomechanical processes that we need to respect if we disrespect those processes we're going to end up going backwards instead of forwards and one of those things it's it's healing time and uh, I will always do my best and I will always say to my patients, even if I'm aiming to immediately load, and uh, give an immediate temporary restoration, I'll say to them, we're having a denture as a backup or we're having a Rochette as a backup. I'd rather throw it in the bin, but I'd rather have it and not need it as opposed to going, Mm-mm, I can't do this and then not having anything and then walking away with, with a space at the front of their mouth.
1: Well, we've covered already with the denture. Make sure that it's not touching the soft tissues. Make sure it's not a uh, flange. You mentioned make sure it's not socketed. For anyone who doesn't know what that is, that's basically you don't want an ovate pontic. You don't want the tooth actually going into the socket, obviously, because there's an implant there uh, and uh, and there's a healing abutment there. But so, in case anyone missed that, we don't want that. So let's now change gears and talk about uh, a Rochette bridge. Interestingly, Ken Hemmings, restorative consultant, I had a chat with him many years ago, maybe nine years ago now. And he was saying that, you know, while he's waiting for, you know, integration or soft tissue healing, etc, etc, he he didn't actually like using Rochette bridges. He actually used the um, unperforated retainer with Panavia because his argument was like, listen, my patients, you know, they're barristers, they're this, that, and the other. It would be a travesty if they lost their their, their tooth. So I pretty much treat it like a definitive. And then nine months later or whenever, I made a, I made that number up. I'm sure you guys know know the numbers better, but he will then remove the reservoir and bridge. And then at that point, you can actually design the reservoir bridge to have some sort of a lip, which is going to be really super filled with cement. And then you can ultrasonic it out and try and sort of lever it out. Uh, but I guess we can talk about techniques. Are removing bridges anyway, you know, involving forceps, etc. But um, most colleagues I speak to implant, they use rochettes, which are, are perforated. So what is your experience of using resin bonded bridges as part of your implant protocols?
0: I prefer rochette bridges, as opposed to resin bonded bridges for a for actually for quite a simple reason is when when you seat it, some of that cement flows through those holes onto the other side, you can, I can smear it a little bit. It actually gives me a bit, little bit more retention. And uh, for that reason, I, I, I really, really like it. I do not like GIC to hold these things in place. I don't think they hold particularly well at all. I'll tell you what I have used very successfully before in the past. These are dual-cure resin cements, something like Reliex. I have used Panavia. The issue that I found with Panavia, it's always too good. Then removing it ends up being a real nightmare.
1: I imagine, like you're you're trying, trying, trying. Like I've done it before. You you have to just drill away the metal, right? Correct. You just drill, drill it away, right? Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. And this again is one of the reasons why I like Russia is because because they've got that little bit of mechanical retention. You're not relying solely on the uh, on the adhesive on the on the cement. Is they're a li- they're a little bit more robust for a cement that fails a little bit easier for when you want to remove it. I've also used polyf before for these, which works really, really nicely, but like Relix dual key or something like that, I tend to find I get fairly stable results with and I really like that.
1: Okay, and then same thing in terms of the Pontic uh, being well clear of the abutment, the the stock healing abutment in this case, for example, or, or customized, like it's going to be away from that healing abutment, not putting any pressure. And you've checked this, um, any guidelines, half a mil, a mil in, in terms of how much clearance you want?
0: Half a mil, three quarters of a mil, something okay. like that. There's actually two ways of doing this. Aha, uh-huh. mm-hmm. just to make it even more complicated, okay? Definitely. So you can put your customized healing abutment underneath and then put your Rochette on top. If you're putting a cover screw onto the implant, so you're burying it, maybe the implant wasn't as tight as what you need. You can actually have a slight ovate uh, pontic on the Rochette. The problem is, is, you don't always know which one you're going to need until the implant goes into place. So you either make a judgment call beforehand or you add a little bit of material to it or you cut a little bit of material away.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense to me, right? If you go with the Ovate and then a, a drill it away, it just takes time. and It's annoying and you have to go through polishing. I'm, I'm, I assume you want nice, highly polished surfaces against your, yeah. your surgical site, right?
0: 100%. And this this, again, is why immediate temporization and immediate loading is actually better. There are actually certain... Uh, kits that you can get, which actually help you make those contours subgingibly, but you can really quite easily do it freehand as well. It's just a bit fiddlier. That's
1: it. Mm-hmm. And can you just add like um flowable composite? If you want to make it, have you used flowable onto your ceramic as a sort of temporary shape builder? Yeah, correct.
0: Yeah, That's exactly what I've done. You just need an adhesive to get the flowable to stick to it. Or I don't get the lab to make it in a ceramic. I'll get them to make that obviously the metal work.
1: And then just get them to use composite, then it's much composite. easier. Composite, yeah, yeah. That makes sense, actually. Using yeah. a composite, a uh, Pontic rather than ceramic, yeah. And the Correct. lab bill will be better as well. Correct. It's only temporary, doesn't. it's
0: not designed to be there for a very long time.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Any other nuances that you think, um, you know, because I know you teach so much in your uh, academy, I I assume for the restorative dentists new to this field, they uh, probably have a lot of nuanced questions about Rochette. Now, I know we covered a lot there in terms of cement choice, probably a popular one, the design of the retainer, that kind of stuff. Any other nuances before we move on to actually um, uh, stuff that will be helpful to those who already are practicing uh, implants and placing implants? any, Any nuances on temporization in terms of, going for a delayed approach and you want to put a tooth there temporarily
0: so a, a lot of the finesse comes into the next bit that we're going to talk about but normally what i do is as you uh, stated before because it's temporary i normally get the, the lab to add a little notch somewhere on the palatel normally underneath the pontic where i can get the uh, crown and bridge remover in and i like those pneumatic or those slide drill crown and bridge removers you generally tend to find that with a rochette you just put it underneath slide one tap and it's off comes off really nice and clean then it's just a matter of just cleaning up the wings a little bit cleaning up the excess cement and then if you need to use it again you can reuse it again
1: one thing I've done um, is uh, removing reservoir and bridges, is uh, using some gauze over the, the pontic and then using some forceps, like extraction forceps, supporting the abutment tooth, okay? Uh, and then just giving it a good talk uh, and that can help. But yeah, you gotta warn the patient, uh, they're gonna feel a bit of a, uh, yeah, and you don't wanna use it on anyone who's got maybe grade one mobility, etc. cetera. He wants nice firm teeth, obviously, and you in a controlled way. But I know lots of dentists, I know Rajiv R- Ruala taught me this actually uh, many years ago and I've used this uh, a few times. But yeah, sometimes if you use Panavia, you know, it's really tough. And then at that point, you got to get the, the big boy bears out and really just th- thin out the metal. The interesting thing, when you actually thin out the metal and you ultrasonic it a bit... It actually does come away. The last bit just, it just yeah. pings off sometimes if you get lucky. Yeah. So I've experienced that as well. Okay, yeah. well, let's switch gears now and talk about top tips with restoring uh, spaces uh, with, with temporaries before you move on to definitive crowns. Now, we well, mentioned, let's say in a scenario where you are immediately loading. So you've got uh, either the, the patient's own tooth that you've gouged out or temporary one. Now, how would that temporary one be made? Is that always a lab made thing? So the
0: the easiest way to do it is to have the lab make a shell made temporary with just a couple of simple wings that sit on the adjacent teeth, okay? And that can be single tooth, it can be multiple teeth. Because what's going to happen is if you've just got a shell temporary without any wings, locating it is it's is not as easy you just you just say, okay, I'm placing an implant in the central upper, say upper right one position. And then my lab will put a wing on the lateral and the the contralateral one as well. That means once that tooth is gone, it will just kind of like drop into place and it will hook over the incisal edges. uh, And that way I can kind of like let it go without it falling away. It's like so a locating
1: lug right it's like index like a locate, seating lug essentially that's
0: exactly what it is so it, it's it's not a wing because you're going to adhere to it it's a locating jig so you get the orientation correct so i i used to do it where i i just used to make the shell crowns and then you kind of like gotta try and orientate it correct with your fingers and then my big fingers are in the way while i'm trying to pick it up with flowable composite and then i was just like hang on why don't i just do this that's so much easier and what I would do is I would get the lab to make the shell crown all the way up to the CEJ. So it's contoured nicely, but that's not just contoured labially, but it follows the gingival contour from the labial aspect to the palatal aspect and then back around again. So it's like the crown is fully formed. It's not like flat, it's not like a flat three uh, 360. What you do at that stage, once the implant's in place, you then put your temporary, what we call the cylinder in place, and that should pop up through the hollowed out, temporary and if not then you can thin it out more now with these hollowed out temporaries I get my lab to really thin them out quite a lot because you're gonna add material and have
1: it all picked up anyway so I mean this should be they should be see-through right pretty much this should be very very thin yeah. like we're talking acrylic right yeah we are talking acrylic mm-hmm. if they're too thick all that ends up happening
0: is you've got to create that space first and you're never going to be as neat as what your technicians are going to be. So I get the technician to do as much of the work as possible. And that's partly because I'm, I want to be as lazy as what I possibly can be as well. Okay. I've sure.
1: been in those scenarios, right, where I've, I've, I've done like um, shell bridges and whatnot, right, uh, and the technician has completely uh, misinterpreted what I wanted uh, and they pretty much milled these margins, like one millimeter margin, thinking I'm doing these one millimeter margins. I was actually doing vertical preparation. So I had to, I was there ages gouging out. Then I would get the GC fit checker. You know that silicon stuff, right? Put it inside. Yep. Seat it on. Pencil mark. Where is it binding? Adjust it. We don't want any of that. Just get the lab. Have that conversation with the lab. They want it as thin as possible. Eggshell thin as they call it yes
0: yeah absolutely correct so then what you do is you should have your implant in place you put your temporary cylinder in place and the shell should just fit over the top so that that's the first check and then what you're doing is you build the contour below the gingiva first so you're taking it on and off you're taking the cylinder on and off you're getting that contour correct that's a bit too technical for this because a lot of it is visual so i can't get yeah, into it yeah. too much but there we're talking things.
1: acrylic are you using like acrylic hand mixed acrylic
0: I'm using flowable
1: composite for that,
0: okay? And I want a really nice flowable composite so I can polish it as much as what I possibly can, okay? Once you're happy with that, su- with that subgingival a bit, you put the shell crown on top, you pick it all up with flowable and then you cut off the wings and you kind of like polish it so it looks like a screw retained crown, okay? Now, let me throw some information at you. So Dennis Tarnow has done, uh, 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 done some research into this. Did you know that 98% of people have a smile line high enough that they at least show their papillae as a minimum? I didn't know it was that high. Is that, it's very, very high. So 98% of people will at least show their papillae. The mm-hmm. issue that you have is when it comes to implants, when you take a tooth out, it doesn't give the same support to the papillae. It doesn't have the same blood supply to the papillae. And it's very, very common to have blunting of the papillae when you are doing an immediate implant. If a patient's got a low smile line, then it's not not a problem. But what happens when you do have this smile line where the papillae show or there's a very high smile line? And the answer to that is really, really simple. You need to do soft tissue grafting at the same time as implant placement. Mm -hmm. So... In anterior aesthetic zones, a lot of people say, oh, we're going to do uh, immediate placement. We don't raise a flap. You should be raising a flap. You should be raising a split thickness flap, harvesting dense keratinized tissue from the palate. And there are certain ways of of suturing, but effectively what you want to do is you want to augment over the site of the tooth and the papilla either side as well. And what happens is when you do that augmentation and you push at the soft tissue thickness to two millimeters, that those papillae they will infill. Okay, over time mm. they will heal absolutely beautifully. Is you get really nice stable result. So in high aesthetic patients or in patients with a high smile on where the papillae is possible, it's my opinion that soft tissue grafting in the anterior zone. At the time of immediate placement and immediate loan, it's mandatory. It's mm-hmm. you can't get away with it just by doing the uh, just by doing the temporary crown. It's not enough because the biology changes. You need to give more uh, uh, strength, more uh, soft tissue volume to the papilla themselves. So it's not just uh, augmenting over the site. You've got to augment the papillae either side as well. When you do that, that is when you don't get papilla loss. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, how does that that translate, uh, Pav, to your surgeries that you do in the sense that, you know, if 98% of people uh, are showing a papilla, therefore, are you doing this uh, connected tissue graft in 98% of cases?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Because it doesn't take take a vast amount of time. Mm -hmm. Or again, the other thing it comes down to is patient communication, right? So I turn around and I'll say to the patients, if they've got a low smile line, I just turn around and say to them, look, in order to get a perfect uh, result, this is what we're going to need to do, um, uh, and uh, the cost of it is going to be X, but you're not going to see it anyway. Patients go, fine, I'm not really bothered about it. There are other patients where you may see the papilla, but it's not really a massive amount, or it's kind of like the... The adjacent teeth are all kind of like, you know, you can see composites on them and they, they don't, you know, they, and for those patients, you just have the discussion and you ask them whether they want to do it. The patients where it's absolutely mandatory are those younger patients or patients with a very high smile line or patients who are very aesthetically demanding. Then I turn around and say to them that, look, it's not just doing the implant because I can get the implant looking nice, but it's that balance between where the pink zone is and where your teeth are. That's what your eyes is going to be drawn to. Mm-hmm. I so said, I guarantee you because of the biology and the mechanics of what's going on, if we just take a tooth out, put an implant in, you're gonna have a little bit, you're gonna have just small black triangles showing either side. I so said, the way to alleviate that, get around that is to do some very simple grafting at the time. That does mean a second surgery site. Uh, it'll be like you've bitten into a pizza that's too hot. it will be sore and, bru- <laughs> sore and you'll your it for a few days, but it will heal. And when you explain it to patients like that is quite often they'll go, yeah, I'll have it done, you know, and whether they have it done or not comes down to how you communicate with them. So if you tell them that you've got to take a strip of gum from their palate and it's going to hurt like hell, then they're not going to have it done because in their mind, you've got to take a strip of gum from the palate and It's going to hurt. Whereas if you turn around and say to them, look, pretend you've bitten into a pizza that's really hot and it's burnt the roof of your mouth and it's sore for a few days, but it settles down. It just had a It's big so much ul- more relatable, isn't it? So much more related, and, and I say to patients, that's what it's gonna feel like. I said, it's gonna feel like a bad ulcer for a few days. And, that, and that's all that it is. And to be honest is your harvesting techniques and your surgical techniques is, they shouldn't really be heavy handed. I warn my patients of that, but very few actually come back complaining of pain because the amount of pain that a patient experiences directly related to how traumatic you are, which is not necessarily related to the surgery that they're doing, but how you're doing the surgery. Mm-hmm. So using very gentle techniques plays a massive, massive role for patients.
1: I mean, you taught me Pav, uh, a while ago, just because I follow your posts and stuff about the importance, like you take it to a next level, like a blood test, because most patients will be vitamin D deficient. Like you taught me that kind of thing. And to make sure that they, you optimize their healing, right? And all those important factors, their medical history. So I've absorbed that, even though I don't do implants, I've absorbed those details from you. But it's just interesting relating it back to uh, the restorative dentists who may or may not be uh, placing implants. Think to how important soft tissue is, even for like uh, resin bond bridge cases. You're doing a bridge, conventional or resin bond bridge. Right? If you are replacing a tooth, it slightly doesn't have a papilla there. And yeah. to get a really good result, you need soft tissue um, augmentation, even with bridges and stuff to get a, a nice papilla. So you can apply that uh, to those one. Well. Now, if you don't, you need to show the patient that either we accept the black triangle or you get a long connector. So it's also relevant in the restorative uh, world as well. What I do love, pal, I have to say, even though I don't uh, do implants, I love those photos of, of patients who when you remove their uh, temporary implant crowns, and just a beautiful tissue, like with this sc- scaffolding that you had in place, and it's just perfectly ready for the definitive crown there. I do love those photos. And I used to work as a DCT in restorative. I remember uh, unscrewing some screw retained temporaries and just looking at that beautiful soft tissue. That is a thing of beauty. Yeah, it's great. Oh, see, you are a titanium nerd. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't know it yet. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, Pab, you've uh, covered things really well. I'm very happy how tangible we made it. I think for a lot of the uh, dentists, Some of those, the way you explain those certain things are brilliant, even if you just take away the communication gem of hot pizza on the palate and how to uh, talk about that. I think that's great. How can we learn more? Now, I know you you teach people who have zero experience in implants, but also people who are doing a master's at the same time, you teach them as well, uh, and they all have something to gain. So tell us about how we can learn more from you.
0: So very simply is just just reach out to me. You can go to the academyofimplantexcellence.com or you can find me on uh, on Instagram. I've got three Instagram handles, Dr. Pavkara, Academy of Implant Excellence and the Dental Implant Podcast. And it's just reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn as well, Pavkara. Just reach out to me. And what's really important for me is I speak to everybody before they enter onto the academy. I don't just let anybody on because I'm building a a, a network of people where as you rightly said some of them have never placed an implant before in their life and I've got other people who only place implants wanting to increase their knowledge and increase their skill and I have to create a safe environment for everybody so what's important to me is those joining the Academy they are hunger they're hungry they are keen to learn because when they have that attitude is they will love the information that I give them because if somebody comes in and I, ah oh, I just fancy doing the audio implant now and again, the amount of information that I dump in, it's is just too, it's overwhelming for them. So that you need to be a titanium nerd. Uh, but yeah. if you want to learn is, I, I just love helping and I love watching. You know, when you're speaking to people, you see light switches going on and there's this these aha moments all the mm. time, all the time. It's, I love it, I love it. And in fact, I've actually swapped, switched recently my working week So I'm now focusing more on the academy and mentoring, but I'm still saying staying wet handed a couple of days a week as well, because I'm just at that point in my career now where I feel like I want to give back and I need to give back. So um, I'm, I'm,
1: I'm just I'm, thinking about the practicalities of this, path. Like, is it online only? Is it in person? Because I'm thinking, you know, I've got lots of this is from the, the US, Australia, Europe. Is it only UK that you can help out? Like, how, how does it work? No.
0: So the academy, the theoretical part is it's all online because let's be honest, you can learn everything you need to learn about implants from articles and textbooks if you knew which articles and textbooks to read. Or you can learn everything by somebody telling you, And from somebody telling you, you can either do that in person or you can do it online while you're in bed in your PJs on a Sunday afternoon, whatever it is. So in that context, I actually have delegates from Canada, America, Austria and Australia as well. And it's it's a fantastic group. With regards to the actual hands-on aspect of it, I do offer mentoring as well. That's obviously easier in the UK than anywhere else. Um, and you don't need to be a, a delegate of the academy to, to get mentoring. Some people are just like, Pav, I'm stuck, or I want to learn how to do these complex cases, or I want to learn this. If I line, a, line up a day full of patients, would you come out to me? And the answer to that is... Yes, if you're a Titanium nerd, I'll come out to help you. So,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, amazing. Well, Titanium there we have it. Pav's your answer if you need mentorship or if you want to take that next level uh, in your implant knowledge. Uh, Pav, thanks so much again for coming on the show yes. and, and, and making implants tangible. Well, there we have it, guys. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope we made some aspects tangible, which perhaps no one explained what a custom healing abutment is, or if you're already well-versed with it, it's good to learn Path's protocol of how he does his reservoir bridges using something like Reliac cement and how he doesn't favor GIC and even just appreciating the need for soft tissue augmentation to get that ideal result. If you want to learn more from PAV, check out Academy of Implant Excellence. So I'll put the link in the show notes. You can of course follow him on Instagram as well. It's at Academy of Implant Excellence. And while you're there, I know you'll also follow at Protrusive Dental. Anyway, we'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks so much once again for listening all the way to the end.